Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. Today, my guest is Luis Perez, a very distinguished professor of history at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Perez's recent book, The Structure of Cuban History, is a history of history as understood by Cubans through stories, family conversations, novels, and memoirs. Taking the emotional aspects of war, empire, and revolution as its point of departure, it explores the ways that ordinary Cubans and intellectuals made sense of their present through their past. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Lou, thanks so much for being with me here today. Uh, my pleasure, Alejandra. I appreciate you getting up at this hour at your end of the continent. <laughs> <laughs> Can we start out with you talking a little bit about your trajectory as a historian? Um, tell us how you became uh, a historian, and, and in particular, how you became the historian of Cuba who writes about a book a year. We're all very jealous of you. <laughs> Be very kind. Um, I actually backed into history. Um, it was um, opportunism. When I applied to graduate school, my principal interest was Latin America. And I applied to various programs, one in political science, one in sociology, one in anthropology, um, another in Latin American studies, and one in history. And the best funding I received was history. And that determined the trajectory that I subsequently followed. It could have just as easily been anthropology. Uh, so it was slightly mercenary and opportunistic, but that's how I got into history. Well, that's interesting, actually, because your books are all uh, interdisciplinary in some ways, and you have such a wide range of interests, and that actually explains a lot about your writing. Um, can you tell us how you came to write this book in particular? It's it's slightly different from the many books that you've written as a book about the uses of history rather than the straightforward account of what happened. Um, and I really like the way that both are woven in. So what was the motivating impulse for this particular project? I think a book, for me, a book of this type comes after years of working on Cuban history, working with Cuban historians, working in Cuba on Cuban history, uh, the result of conversations, um, disagreements, and, and of course, reflections and retrospects as to the character of my own work and the character of the work of, in the field, both in the United States and in Cuba and elsewhere. And it became increasingly apparent to me with the passage of time that we were, most of us, many of us, uh, were kind of socialized into a historiography that that um, took the problematic of nation as its point of departure. And many of us uh, outside of Cuba and most historians inside of Cuba, and certainly, certainly after 1959, that point of departure also served to be the, the point of destination. So it became an interesting, an interesting uh, 
path of reflection on how this idea of the struggle for nation, the pursuit of national sovereignty, the, the quest for self-determination uh, became such a an, such embedded facets of a historiography. And increasingly, I began to to reflect on um, we have been consumed in the last 25 years on what we call national identity. And I came, I came back to this idea of national character and this idea of national character, which was so, so ascendant in, in the 40s and 50s, principally by anthropologists, um, enjoyed a, a, a currency, a fad. And then it seems that it was discarded and rejected because it played into stereotypes, national stereotypes, and people left it behind. But I came fascinated by the proposition of a national character and the degree to which is it possible that a national character can be shaped or influenced or determined by the very history that that the people created, that they be, that they become organically tied to their past, and their past determines the course of their future. So that's the short answer. Um, and you make it clear, one of the things that's really interesting is that you make it clear in the introduction that the, that the meaning of nation and the meaning of history has a very moral component. I was, I was really surprised by that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, the Cuban experience, part, part of the problem with working with Cuba, or perhaps any country where one so uh, so uh, uh, links one's intellectual energies. Um, it uh, Cubans are are quite smitten with themselves. Um, one of the principal problems between the Cubans and the Americans is that both both peoples operate from a sense of um, of exceptionalism, and it's difficult to work it's difficult to work with Cuba with Cubans in Cuba about Cuba without being pulled into that gravitational field where one accepts a proposition of Cuban exceptionalism, that one, one, for the want of a better term, that one goes native about, about Cuban history. Um, but the idea, the idea of, of, of a Cuban exceptionalism, um, where one begins to understand what the formative ideas of a nationality uh, consisted of uh, these ideas of, of, of social justice, of racial equality, of democracy, of uh, economic well-being. All these ideas are, are, are inscribed in what it is, what it means to be Cuban. And 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 what struck me about the the narratives of nation in the 19th century was that for for many people, certainly not all, but for, for significant numbers of people. The proposition of self-determination and national sovereignty were, were never ends. They were always conceived of as means, um, so that once national sovereignty, self-determination, independence would have been achieved, then the idea was, the theory was, that they would then proceed to implement this this moral sense of, of nations, so much informed by Jose Martí, but he's not the only one. There are many others who, uh, who contributed to this idea. And so what, what, I, what, I, what I suggest in the book is that this, this idea of, of nation as means and not end um, 
is traumatized by the U.S. intervention of 98 and everything that happens thereafter. And so it becomes this idea of nation uh, becomes this all-consuming pursuit. Um, And so that every, almost every opposition candidate uh, for either elected office or revolutionary leader continues to go back to the same well for for validation. Uh, and this just becomes such an overriding issue that, and as I think I mentioned in the book, that you know this is not to suggest that the Cuban Revolution of 59 was inevitable, but that a road to power on these ideas uh, most assuredly was inevitable. I think that um, one of the things that that does is that it really reshapes the periodization. And I want to talk about this later in the sense of the way that there's a lot more continuity in your story than there is in some other historiographies. But I guess my, my question now is, is kind of related. And I'm wondering if you're arguing, if you understand yourself as arguing against anyone or any kind of current of historiography in particular or against a particular interpretation of, of Cuban history? Did you see yourself as sort of pitting yourself against uh, certain certain uh, lines of thinking about nation and, and, uh, and history? Um, I'm not sure that I, that I started with that intention. I could tell you that when I finished... Um, how would I phrase this? When I finished that book, um, I felt that as far as I was concerned, that I had said everything that I needed to say about the phenomenon of, of nation, national sovereignty, and self-determination. Um, I, my own sense is that any understanding of the character of Cuban uh, the character of, of, of the, the narratives of Cuba from Cubans must begin from, from, from that understanding. And what, what I have suggested in the work that I'm doing now and papers and talks that I've given is um, I'm, I'm actually turning my back on the nation uh, and my sense is that we should let that lie for maybe a generation and turn our attention to different issues. Um, um, I mean, now I'm working on a book, I'm going to work on a manuscript that's taking a look at the collapse of moral systems uh, in 19th century Cuba, um, that we have been so consumed with the war of liberation, um, you know, the Ten Years' War, the Little War, the War for Independence, Jose Martí, Antonio uh, Maceo, Maximo Gómez. This is just the dominant, the dominant theme themes of the 19th century. That we seem to have forgotten that there's there's a whole other world going on in Cuba. That is, life in the cities, uh, society, gender, um, music, uh, dancing, uh, literature. Um, in other words, while this small handful of people are conspiring for a new nation, there are vast numbers of people who are living in, in, in the old society and in many ways are contributing to the collapse of moral systems, normative structures that make everything else possible. Um, same thing with... with um, with, with with sugar, I think we have really we really should turn uh, our attention away from sugar and 
I'm, I'm thinking of a project to work on rice that is what the people eat, not what the people like what the humans export. So to try to get into a much more kind of daily life aspect of human history rather than the great uh, heroic narratives of liberation. There are little bits of that in the book, and I particularly enjoyed the things about the theater and the cities and um, yes. all of those kinds of things. So I'll look forward to that next project already. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I that that really struck me when I read this book was how much is about emotion. Um, and it just hits you right away in the first chapter. And I, I, I'll quote just a little bit. Peace found a people prostrate. The war had been cruel. Life assumed a nightmarish quality. Right. And throughout the whole book, there's this real emphasis on emotion and how things felt. And it's really, really comes through in the writing in this kind of in this very uh, vivid way. And so much so that I thought actually that the, the title was maybe an allusion to Raymond Williams structure of feeling. I don't know if that was your intention, but um, it's just so much emphasis on, on feeling. And often um, they didn't feel good. There's not a lot of triumphalism in this, in this book, right? There was a lot, there's a lot of things that didn't feel good to Cubans. Um, But, but I guess my my question is, did you set out to write a, a book about emotion uh, that was influenced actually by uh, years of conversation with colleagues and friends in Cuba, um, um, whereby almost everyone, not to say everyone, but almost everyone that I had with whom I spoke, and these, and these are not interviews, these are the way you and I speak when we're at the AHA, uh, over drinks, over a beer, uh, over coffee. Um, almost everybody had a parent or a grandparent, uh, and I try to I try to privilege those those dialogues in the book, where so much of this is not history, not history learned as a subject taught, but history learned as part of a family narrative uh, that, that that people grew up with, with uh, many women grew up listening to the stories of aunts and uncles, uh, mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, um, in ways that I found fascinating. There was a point where the book almost became that, uh, just a, a, you know, a study of, of, of Cuban history told, you know, as transmitted through multiple generations. And when you, when you come to the subject, when you come to the subject by that, by those means, and it's one of many, but when you come to it, including that, then you cannot help but simply transmit that emotion. Uh, in other words, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't discover it per se. It was, it was given to me by, by men and women with whom I spoke and who shared memories with me and shared, shared photographs with me. Um, it is an emotional subject, um, and and people carry those emotions. Sometimes they carry those emotions in their sleeve. Yeah, I, I noticed that, and uh, there's a connection to gender in that argument that I want to talk about a little bit later, but just to get back to, to one of the points that you made, the use of sources in this book is a lot of novels, a lot of memoirs, a lot of things that are kind of circulating in the public sphere, not so much, um, a little bit, but not so much kind of historians and intellectuals and all of those kinds of things. I was really expecting a series of, of historiographic essays, right, where you talked about the major interpretations of historians and all of those kinds of things. So I was really surprised that that's not what you were doing at all. And that I really 
I really liked the use of novels and and uh, memoirs and the ways that those um, circulated in playgrounds and in homes and in in schools and and all of those kinds of things. It was really a much different register for thinking about history. I I, uh, I am I'm a great I am a believer in the novel contemporary novels. Uh, I think they offer uh, uh, a, a spectacular source. Uh, so too with poetry of the period, with the, the lyrics of, uh, of, uh, of songs of the period, uh, and of course memoirs and testimonials and uh, autobiographies. Um, I I think that's where where possible the history should begin. From, from the mouths and from, from the sources of people who lived through it, and then for us to then to craft our own narratives around those experiences and, and kind of build up build upward from, from those accounts. But at the same time, you get um, if you if you think about those kinds of sources, you get a lot of contradictions. And you talk about this. Then I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit more. So for the nineteenth century, it's uh, it's both about progress and modernity and looking to the future and sort of celebrating those kinds of things, but also this kind of romanticized notion of identity based on tradition, music, dance, the land. Uh, so there's a kind of tension there in all of the, in all of the kinds of things you're seeing. And there's a con- contrasting and kind of mirroring tension in the 20th century. But I wonder um, if you can talk just a little bit about the 19th century and how did that, how did that work? How did those two, two things fit together and work how were they held at the same time or were they held at the same time? I think, and I could say this, if you had asked me this a year and a half ago, I'm not sure that I would have a a coherent response. Uh, But as a result of the work I'm doing now, it is clear that we have to look at Cuban and culture in Cuba uh, from through the 19th century as uh, an organic, ever-changing, dynamic uh, process. So there is always a tension. There's always a tension in this culture between the past, present, and the future, between modernity and tradition. Part of this is is a function of Criollos um, versus Peninsulares, Cubans versus Spaniards, that's part of it. Um, part of it is uh, generational. That is, um, the, the way one finds tensions, perhaps it's universal, I don't know, but certainly the tensions between um, young people and, and their parents, tensions between whites and blacks, tensions between men and women. In other words, this is a society like many societies that is written with tensions and contradictions. So let's take music. Um, uh, one of the, the great sources of tensions in the second half, the last third of the 19th century, is what is happening to Cuban music. And the people who like traditional music, people who, uh, who adhere to music performed in certain ways with, with certain relationships between the way men and women dance, the way one moves one's body, were going um, apoplectic with the new dances that were coming, taking form in Cuba in the, from the 1870s through the 1890s. Um, 
maybe more important, this is one of these ironies, uh, maybe more important than the little war about which there is a vast literature is a tension that's going on with the Cuban youth uh, dancing to um, the danzón, the danzón, which becomes Cuba's national dance in the 20th century, scandalizes polite society in the 19th century. And what they don't like is the way Cuban youth, and presumably is, not presumably, but it is predominantly Cuban youth, are dancing, the way they're moving their bodies, the way they're shaking their hips. And just as important, the, the recognition that the danzón is now introducing into what we would call mainstream, polite society, uh, African rhythms. And all, all in this one process, you see uh, increasing tensions that have to do with gender, that have to do with race, that has to do with generations, that have to do with nationality. All of this is is just uh, embroiled in, in, in one place, in one site, and dancing. The character of the music to which Cuban youth are dancing, uh, it, just, it just rips open a kind of a, a, an exposure to what's going on in, in, in Cuba that we have been um, totally ignorant of uh, because we've been concentrating on the wars for independence, for example. Well, you know, I was going to ask you about one thing that isn't very um, prevalent in the book, which is slavery and lots of talk about race. But it seems like this is one of the ways that you're thinking about race and one of the ways that it that it's working its way into the narrative without actually talking about the wars of independence and slavery per se, but these other kinds of things that are that are kind of seeping in, as you say, to the public sphere. Do you, do you think that that's do you think that that's right to say? I mean, I was I was struck that you don't really talk too much about slavery. I don't. Um, I'm trying to think of how to how to respond to that. Um, this book, for example, the book I'm working on now is clearly about, um, and I say this in the introduction, uh, about white middle class Cubans in the cities. Um, I deal very little with race. This is almost a history of the, of the emergence of a new middle class in Cuba. Um, and I recognize the importance of, and I have addressed the issues of slavery and racism elsewhere. Um, there is issues of race and matters of racial justice in the structure of Cuban history, uh, which is a facet, of course, of, of nation and what the nation is supposed to address that does not get addressed. Um, and, and so for me, the the... I, I am in, in the new book, for example, I am far more interested and just because it's to me a totally unknown, uh, unaddressed theme in 19th century Cuba, uh, what we could call a, a, a mood uh, of misogyny that runs through the last third of, of the Cuban 19th century, the Cuban urban middle class uh, setting. Uh, the misogyny that that just settles over this society is quite breathtaking, and and I, as well as others who have spent years studying the 19th century, uh, have somehow have somehow um, not picked up not picked up on this. Um, but it is it is a phenomenal uh, facet of the last four or five decades of the Spanish colonial system. The 
the degree to which women are attacked for agency. That's really fascinating, and I guess I would agree with you in uh, with regards to that interpretation. I mean, you do you actually talk about gender a lot in this book, and I was uh, really fascinated by one of the quotes um, where you write, where you, you quote the historian Jose Abreu Cardet. He says, women arrived first at the sense that Cubans were making history. Can you, uh-huh. can you tell us a little bit about what you meant by that, or what he meant by that, perhaps? When one kind of gets into what we had mentioned earlier, into these first-person accounts, um, when one um, uh, begins to probe uh, to read letters, to read memoirs, to read correspondence, uh, to read the poetry. Uh, there is a, a fierce, fierce patriotism in the writings and the reflections of Cuban women in the 19th century. Uh, the number of Cuban poets, female poets of the 19th century who are who are fixated on on nation uh, it's quite stunning I, and I don't have an explanation for that I really don't I don't uh, there are there are collections of, of women's poetry in the 19th century by poets well known and poets never to be known uh, whose works were published some were put, some of these poems were written uh, in exile many were written in Cuba um, and I think I allude in the book uh, that this whole idea of nation, coming back to what you had asked earlier, the the emotional content. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to figure out. Um, there is an emotional content to the sense of, of of nationality and nation that I think has very very specific uh, origin in in the, in the narratives of women in the 19th century. There is what what I found fascinating is the degree to which, in almost all the memoirs or the Mambises, the, the the men who participated in the war for independence, how many of these guys um, remember their sense of 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 Cubani, that sense of nation, being transmitted by mothers, um, and it's it, it's quite striking how not only that it happens, okay, which you say okay, well it happens, but that these men, when they write their memoirs, uh, are sufficiently cognizant of that phenomenon to record it as part of their own formation. Um, and so there, there is there is something there. There is there, there, there's another story, another history waiting to be written. Yeah, I think that you've written a lot of that history <laughs> in this book, actually. Um, and, and if we move into the 20th century and thinking about these memoirs in particular and about other sources, I guess, too, it, it struck me that the the 19th century seems to be about this kind of tension between modernity and romanticizing the past. And then the 20th century starts out with this contradiction or this tension between the, the, the emotion or the mood of joy, right, that, that independence has finally been achieved, but also the awareness that it's this limited independence um, with with, as you say, much to do and much to realize. And um, what you what you end up coming down on is that the central mood of the first part of the 20th century is one of demoralization. So um, 
there's this image of, of people just going around kind of depressed about what's happened and, and about their, their place in, in, in history. Is that, does that sound right? Is that, is that no, not, meant to yeah, tell? No, yeah, not, not exactly like that. I think um, most people, let's say from the founding of the Republic in 1902 through the 1930s, at least through the end of the 1920s, most normal people, uh, resume their lives uh, and try to reestablish patterns of normality and patterns of routine and people return to the things that matter to us all, you know, making a living and providing for family and taking care of loved ones and paying the rent and buying groceries. In other words, there is, a, there is an everyday normality to Cuban life that, that, that uh, in which uh, most people are engaged. However, the people who think about these big issues, quote-unquote big issues, who think about uh, nationality, who think about the nation, the, um, the disaffected who are not happy with the outcome, there, are, there were scores and scores of people uh, who and, and this is this becomes apparent in the in the narratives and the memoirs and the correspondence. People who struggled in the nineteenth century, many for decades, uh, look back to assess what their efforts had produced, and they could not but be disappointed. Uh, certainly, Cubans of color who participated in the war for independence uh, over the course of three decades. Uh, may very well have ended up worse off than they began. Uh, women who began, who participated in this, expecting to find a a, a nation of, of greater equity and equality, uh, did not obtain, uh, did not see their hopes uh, realized. Um, Cubans who, who were driven by the proposition of self-determination and, and national sovereignty were bitterly disappointed by the Platt Amendment. So there are, there are vast swaths of this society who, who, like all of us, live our lives as normally as possible. And then at different moments, because we have different facets to our lives, uh, get together and complain about circumstances. And I think that's what we see in Cuba. One, you know, it's not, it's not, and I've, and I've, I know this to to be true that one in the 1920s and 30s one could go see go to the movies and enjoy and be delighted uh, by watching an American movie and then immediately thereafter go out and protest in an anti-American demonstration. Perfectly congruent, perfectly logical. So I think the multiple facets of people's lives are exist side by side, and you can have all these tensions that that you that you allude to, uh, very uh, very logically coexistent side by side. Yeah, you make a, a persuasive case for that, and I think that that um, that seems to be. That seems to be a, a, an interesting way to incorporate all of these different things that are going on. And um, one of the things I found really interesting is that this feeling or this set of feelings or this set of tensions of feelings are, are what drive the mobilizations of the 1920s. And you get a new generation uh, that's been raised 
with this feeling of the unfulfilled promise. And I really, uh, I thought it was really interesting, the idea of this generation, these young people, which you've made that, you've made that argument before. Um, and, but they're, they're responding to these stories that they've heard, you know, their parents talking about and all of these kinds of things. And they're responding with this mobilization um, against uh, a lot of different kinds of things in the 1920s. It, it seems to me that that, um, that's a more effective way of thinking about the 1920s than as a series of class-based mobilizations or maybe even different kind of identity-based mobilizations. Do, do you think that's the case? Oh, I, I think so. Uh, uh, I, I mean, one of the ironies of, of, of this process is that the most radical vision of, of political change for the generations of, let's say, the generations of the the generations of the 1920s that we're talking about now, and the generation of the 1950s, um, hard as it appears to to, to 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 contemplate, the most radical vision that that these that these generations are propounding is nothing more than the vision that was propounded. In the 1880s, 1890s, um, it, 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 if, if one just pauses to reflect on, 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 on the character of, of what constitutes Cuban radicalism, this is not to dismiss that there's Marxism, socialism, and communism, and anarchism, all kind of laced and courses its way through these, these narratives. But, but the base, the base, the very, the very fundamental, uh, the, the foundation of this, of this politics is this kind of going back to the past to arrive at a better future. And, and it's a totally, for the want of a better word, it's a totally indigenous national uh, source for a radical vision. Uh, and, and I'm not, and I'm not <laughs> addressing the distance about this vision, but the, as I mentioned earlier, it's just one of many voices. It just happens to be one of the loudest voices, but he's not alone. Uh, so, so what what fuels Cuban politics uh, uh, in the twenties and the early thirties, and certainly in the fifties, is this recurring invocation of of um, the nineteenth century. Um, you know, both as a as a as a as an ideal, uh, as a as a as a trope, as a as a. I, I think I think I spent a lot of time in the book talking about. This idea of the duty and the responsibility and the obligation of being Cuban, and and that's a powerful idea. That 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 summons Cubans. Not whether you want to or not, you have a historic responsibility to 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 fulfill this idea that has been this ideal ideals that have not yet been realized, and that's your duty. Uh, you know, and if, if you look at Castro's uh, history will resolve me speech, this idea is just just courses its way through the speech. And you know, why do we do this? Because we're Cubans and good Cubans. You know, this whole idea of good Cubans and bad Cubans. Good Cubans uh, are morally obliged to struggle for the fulfillment of these ideals. So that's really powerful, and and. Um, the 1950s as well as the 1920s, right? They're they're driven by these by these memories, and one of the one of the really um, uh, kind of interesting points that 
we forget is that in the 1950s, there were still people who were alive at the turn of the century, right? So it wasn't just that these kind of were vague memories, but these were people, these were older people, perhaps, who were talking about this past and who were invoking it in different ways and in different spheres, which uh, I think that we forget that in our in our eagerness to sort of create these periods and, and breaks in history, that there's people who are kind of experiencing all of these all of these little moments um, and remembering them and talking about them. But one thing maybe you can help me understand is um, how much consensus was there about what history was, right? So you can say that people are invoking the wars of independence and um, the revolutionary struggles, but um, wouldn't it be the case that there were be that there would be lots of different interpretations of what those wars were about, lots of different interpretations of what people were fighting for, and lots of different interpretations of what the nation actually meant. Um, so. Are we talking about a series of struggles here? Are we talking about a consensus? Um, how, how did that work? The by the forties and fifties, then there may have been there may have been and there was indeed uh, um, multiple interpretations of what the nineteenth century signified. Uh, so, if we look at the generation who's writing history in the 1910s, maybe early 1920s, um, there is a a far more, what word would I use, a far more, uh, uh, far less critical assessment of of the, the 19th century. In other words, this is a generation that actually experienced, that actually experienced the raising of the Cuban flag uh, on May 20th, uh, 1902, and the, the the end of the U.S. military occupation. Um, I understand, and I think most people would understand, the emotion of the moment. Um, finally, after 400 years of Spanish colonialism, after three and a half years of U.S. military occupation, the Cuban flag goes up, and one is just just seized by the moment. Uh, there's not much room for any, you know, detachment. One enjoys the moment, and Cuba's, for all intents and purposes, to the naked eye, a, a sovereign country. So that generation is a generation that's, that is of the moment of the raising of the flag on May 20th, 1902. By the 19, late 20s and early 30s, this generation that we spoke about earlier is coming of age, and they take a far more critical view of what the raising of the flag signified, in fact. And so from the 1930s to the 1950s, this, the second generation of Cuban uh, historians, that is, the men and women who would have been the teachers of Fidel Castro uh, and his generation, are slowly moving to a fairly broad-based consensus of what Cuban history signifies, what it meant, or what it didn't achieve. So people like Portel Vila and Emilio Ruiz, uh, as well as many others, uh, Ponte Dominguez, um, now adopt a much more critical stance. Uh, and the, the, the most... Uh, the most uh, uh, telling book of, of uh, the most telling 
uh, publication of, of this school of thinking, what, what we come to know as the Cuban, the, the, revision, the revisionist historiography, is Emilio Drogue's book on uh, Cuba doesn't owe its independence to the United States, a little 70-page, 80-page little booklet in which it throws the gauntlet down and said that Cubans had won their independence by the time the U.S. intervened and the U.S. owned, the Cubans owned nothing to the United States. So this is, we can talk about, how, how would I say this? And I think I mentioned this in the book. We can talk about a, a, a revolution in which the historiography of the nation, the dominant, and there is a broad consensus that the historiography of the nation, that, that most people who think, reflect, and write on Cuban history, that, that body of historical literature more than adequately uh, has paved the way for the triumph of the Cuban Revolution intellectually. In other words, when Fidel Castro marches into Havana on January 8th, 1959, uh, and, and, and one listens, because Fidel Castro in the first year, year and a half, whatever else he is, he is a stunning historian. Fidel Castro in the first year is all about history, again and again and again. And he is, he is, he is building on what is already uh, a consensual history of Cuba, but to arrive at an understanding of the character of the Cuban Revolution, it is necessary to really dwell on on the first year, year and a half, um, where Cubans are very conscious of having, how would I say this, having made good on their history. In other words, this is a generation that celebrates itself because it has achieved what every previous generation had tried to accomplish and failed. Uh, nothing buoys the spirit and the morale, and indeed, we could even say the arrogance of this generation as, um, as this idea um, that, and I think there was a refrain that Marti promised it and Fidel delivered it, uh, and, and, and so what, what is fascinating is that whereas the Cubans and the newspaper, <clears throat> excuse me, the newspaper Revolución and the, the Comandantes are all talking about history and policies that are, that come out of that history. Um, again, social justice, racial equality, equity, democracy, uh, all, all to, to fulfill and deliver on the promise of the past. Um, and, and part of this has to do a lot with the Cuban-U.S. relations. So while Fidel Castro is talking about the past, the United States is talking about the present. And they're really talking right by each other. Um, and so the early speeches of Fidel Castro are stunning because of the historical content the historical content of those speeches. Yeah, I I, um, I noticed that, and um, I I loved the um, the way that you talk about Castro's appropriation of history, which seems to be really successful. I mean, as you say, maybe he was just very well taught, right? But one of the one of the great uh, moments in the book is when you talk about this in the very first year, I guess it was, or in the first couple of years, the public reading of articles from the Diario de la Marina, right? So he sits there uh -huh. and he reads, he reads from this 19th century newspaper in order to um, defame it, basically, in order to say this is no good anymore. You can't, 
this is anti-revolutionary. Um, and uh, that was just yeah, no, it's, fascinating. It's, it's, no, it's stunning. I mean, Vieira de la Marina is closed down, uh, not simply because it, it criticized and, uh, and took an oppositional stance, but what made that possible is to, is to, is to have read the very editorials of Vieira de la Marina between 1895 and 1898, and similarly with the Catholic Church. Uh, and and the moral of the story is, uh, if the Catholic Church in Vieira de la Marina celebrated the death of, of José Martí and Antonio Maceo, uh, and they opposed independence, and on and on and on and on, uh, if they were wrong then, then they're obviously wrong now, okay? And we don't need their voice Uh uh, but it is it is total guilt by you know historical association, which is terrific to think about. I mean, maybe that's why we're so fascinated by Castro is his is his ability to to marshal history for all of these different kinds of ways, right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, but but the but one of the things that you say is that the conclusion of the revolution is the end of Cuban history, right? So now what? And and um, and I guess that that makes a, that makes a lot of sense in the ways that you're talking about it. But was there not a sense of making a future making in narratives about the revolution, or what did happen? I mean, was it always about about the past and the and the culmination of this past, or was there a sense of thinking about the future as as attached to that past or coming out of that past? Well, the the, the past after after fifty nine becomes um, the. the the Cuban, the Cuban Revolution, the present and the future of the Cuban Revolution becomes a, a recurring enactment of the past. Uh, so when we get to 1868, um, what we have is the um, um, the emphasis, the, the trope, the trope of struggle, which is just a, 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 the idea of lucha in the Cuban Revolution is is almost defines one of the principal facets of how the revolution and the revolutionary experience is transmitted to the population at large. And so it starts off uh, up to 1860, 1968 is 100 years of struggle. And every facet of the Cuban experience after the revolution gets embedded in and inscribed in some historical analogy, some historical trope, some historical commemoration, um, so that the revolution continues to act and reenact and re-reenact the the past. Um, and I think I mentioned in the book one of the one of the the more interesting uh, um, one of the more interesting facets of this is when the special period, uh, when the, when the Soviet Union and the Eastern Socialist Bloc collapse. Uh, and, and Cuba is kind of strand, stranded by history. There is this um, invocation of of the uh, protest of Baragua, which is, on some level, brilliant. Um, just, I mean, just, I mean, whoever whoever came up with this uh, was someone who was very, very clever, very imaginative, and the protest of Baragua happens in 1878 when the Cuban Liberation Army arrives at a peace with the Spanish and Antonio Maceo assembles his officers and troops and issues a pro- what he calls a protest of Paraguay, which says that no matter what 
what peace the the uh, the other Cubans have have arrived with Spain, he and his officers and men um, will not surrender. And even if it means they have to fight alone, they will fight alone. Okay, and, and people celebrate that. And so, what they do with the with the Cuban leadership does in, in during the nineteen nineties is to take this 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 protest of Baraguay of eighteen seventy eight and said it, it doesn't matter that the socialist bloc has 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 collapsed. We Cubans, and again, look at this as Cuban exceptionalism. Uh, we Cubans uh, will continue in the form of Antonio Maceo, and uh, they they almost every town and city of of, of 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 Cuba in the in the early nineteen nineties through at least the mid nineteen nineties, if you drive in or visit it, you would see somewhere along the line somewhere billboard or something, you know, La Habana un eterno Baragua, an eternal Baragua, an internal struggle. That even if it means they have to struggle alone, um, that's what they will do. So um so 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 the history becomes a continual used, used as a continual source of moral subsidy. Yeah, uh, but although I have to say that it seems like towards the end of the special period, these things are coming full circle and there's a renewed sense of disappointment, right? So again, you get the tension between the the official story being one of, we we got to keep struggling, and, and then you, you quote some people who are really um, at the end of their ropes, right? Right, right. Uh, there's right. one guy who says... Um, I love this quote, the future, fuck the future. I want to now, I want my life to right, be more right. than just struggling. Right. Uh, I, I, I think I, 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 the book, the book ends where I ended, <laughs> you know, where, which is to say that um, the idea that the use of history uh, as a, as a means of, 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 as a politics, uh, I fear had had or has run its course that that history has been so overused and on occasions so abused that it has lost its capacity to resonate among young people. That is the moment that that history has become is seen nothing more than a political device. Then I think, um, then I think the, the the future of history in Cuba is in peril. And I think my my own sense, and this is having conversations now with the children of the people who I may have interviewed, who were telling me about their grandparents in the War for Independence. So it's a curious generational jump. Um, who have, in many cases. Um, Turn their back on history. Um, I recall uh, I live streamed uh, Raul Castro's 26th of July speech. Oh, I'm trying to think, maybe two years ago, three years ago, in which uh, the speech that he gave um, in the city of Guantanamo. And it was a terrible speech. It was a mechanical lifeless invocation of history uh, where he was wrong on many of the things he said, flat out wrong, uh, where see the leadership of the revolution 
the leadership of Cuba uh, in, in rote fashion, reciting history, you know, the worst way, the way we were taught history in high school, the worst, worst possible way that we, we, we learned history. And then to hear the speech uh, and realize that um, if you knew your Cuban history, you look at him and saying, uh, you say, what? You know, and interesting, the speech that was then subsequently published or the version of the speech that was subsequently published in Granma, they cleaned the speech up. Mm. But if you if you were to hear the speech, you would just hear this droning on of Cuban history. And, I, you know, and the tragedy is if that indeed takes hold, and, and I can't say that it has, but if it then Cubans lose what has been have lose what has been the one of the most powerful sources of uh, one of the power most important sources of their patrimony that has been such a vital facet of to go back to where we started of national character and how this plays itself out then is anybody's guess. Yeah, and I, I mean I can't end this conversation without getting. It a little bit more about your sense of what's happening with historical narratives. Now, it sounds like you, you're not, um, you're not very hopeful, but, but perhaps, um, that's because things are changing so quickly and where the narrative falls is, is really up for grabs. Well, I'm not so sure. I, I, I have been following very closely, uh, probably too much, uh, what is being said and written in Cuba and what is being said and written in the United States since December 17th of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating in ways that the, that certainly the American public is not paying attention to. Uh, but if you just, if you kind of burrow below the, 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 the euphoria that is, you know, that is uh, just bubbling over on both sides of the Florida Straits publicly, um, there is a, a very interesting set of developments that have gone on. The first one is um, that Cubans are approaching what we're calling now normalization from a very interesting perspective. They are steadfast uh, and, and in terms of they continue to invoke self-determination and national sovereignty. Um, they are not at all on the defensive in this. On the contrary, on the contrary, um, the Cubans are are quite. There's quite a bit of chutzpah in the Cubans' response to normalization. Uh, you know, they're talking about, or the Americans are talking about the uh, uh, the compensation for nationalized property. The Cubans are talking about compensation for the damage the U.S. has done to Cuba. The Cubans are talking about the, the, they, they want their land back that the Americans seized in 1901. Um, and the Americans... And the Americans are talking in terms of way, in terms that they have always spoken with relationship to Cuba. That they seem to know, think to know what's best for Cuba: mm-hmm. civil society, um, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of political organization, uh, uh, free market, entrepreneurial uh, ethos. Uh, these are all the things that the Americans are telling the Cubans they need to do. When you look back and you say, you know what? Uh, this is nothing has changed uh, except that the Cubans continue to be ferocious about defending national sovereignty and self-determination and the Americans continue to do what they've been doing for the last 200 years telling the Cubans what they, the Americans think is in the Cubans' best interest 
Um, well, I hope you write that up. <laughs> I will be really uh, interested to to read more about that. And I think that it, I mean, I did notice how how uh, entrenched some of the uh, positions were, even in the you know the big ceremonies of the opening speeches and all of those kinds of things. That was really really surprising to me. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time and I just want to thank you so much for talking to me today. It was a really great conversation and I hope everybody reads, goes out and reads your book because it's a really important one. Well, thank you so much and it's lovely to talk with you and I uh, will look forward to us getting together some future AHA Olasa. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman and I hope you can join me next time.